postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. I'm super excited to be here. As always, you guys know me, I'm always excited to be doing these episodes. And in today's episode, we're going to be doing something uh, something special. This is the second bonus episode. Uh, we've got a few more episodes to record between Max and I, but in between then, I've got some bonus episodes. So this is the second one that I will be filming. I'm going to be on my own today. Max isn't with us this weekend. And the episodes that we will be filming uh, coming up are, or not filming, but recording for the podcast, um, are going to be, we're going to be diving into the topic of Adventist history and the contribution of Ellen White and quotations in Ellen White's writings that relate to this conversation on the worship wars. And uh, so we're going to be dissecting some of that and looking at its context and commenting on those. So really, um, really exciting stuff, things that a lot of people ask. Uh, and I think this is the contribution in the comments of Ellen White in relation to music are probably some of the biggest questions that we have had coming through from people who've been listening to the series. So we cannot wait to get into that. That's going to be our final uh, final topic that we tackle. And then we're going to have a Q&A. So please, please make sure that you are emailing me either through the Story Church Project website or directly to my email, pastormarcos at thestorychurchproject.com. That's Marcos with an O-S, not a U-S. So pastormarcos at thestorychurchproject.com. Email me there with any questions that you have in relation to this series. Anything we didn't cover, anything we didn't answer, please send those questions there. And Max and I are going to do our best to interact with those questions and give you a good and satisfying answer. Now, in today's episode, like I said, this is a bonus episode. And what I want to do in this bonus episode is I want to dive deeper into something that Max and I already touched on, but we didn't get to spend a lot of time on. And that is, what do you do with the scientific studies, right? Now, when it comes to the issue of the worship wars, one of the things that you will consistently find with people who are arguing for a very sort of old school hymns only approach is they've got these scientific studies that they will cite. Scientific studies that prove that rock music is bad for you, that uh, drums with beats um, are, are, you know, they, they, that they're bad for you, they're bad for your health, they're bad for your, your heart, they're bad for your psychology, all kinds of stuff. And I'll tell you right off the bat before I even begin, there's so many of these kinds of studies that I'm not going to sit here and like address every single one because that's kind of like when you have a, 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 a tree with bad fruit, um, rather than plucking the bad fruit, you just got to go for the root, right? Because these studies are, there's so many of them. And to be honest, most of them you can't even find. Like, you know, you go on Google and you try and trace some of this stuff or you go on scientific journals and you try and find where some of these studies are located and you just you just can't find them. They're really, really hard to find. And I'm sure that they can be found, but I didn't even think it was worth the time to try and track down every single one like a Nazi because, again, like I said, at the end of the day, the studies themselves are just fruit. There is a root that we need to, to deal with, and that's what I want to focus on mostly in this episode. But with that said, there are a few studies that I will talk about, specific studies that I'll talk about um, that are popular in this conversation. And I'll also give some resources for further exploration, for deepening your knowledge and your understanding. Again, I want to reiterate something else that Max and I have mentioned throughout this series. Our intention with recording this podcast series isn't to just contribute more bullets and bombs to a war that has already been raging for too long. Our intention in in contributing uh, to this conversation, to this discussion throughout this podcast series 
has been to give a voice to a part of the conversation that has been kind of silenced and ridiculed by a certain branch of our denomination for too long, right? And so when it comes to this conversation, it's very difficult to actually have a meaningful discussion when one side of the conversation is constantly, you know, like publishing books and releasing DVDs and all these different things. And then the other side is just kind of silenced and ridiculed or, or kind of like demonized. And so what we wanted to do was say, hey, wait a minute, time out. You may not agree with us. You know, there may be lots of conservatives listening to this who have a very conservative view on music, and you may not agree with what we're saying. And that's okay. Like, we're not here to prove to you or to convince to you that you ought to agree with what we're saying. But what we do want to do is we want to say, here are the reasons why we believe what we believe. And maybe we won't agree, but if you can hold a space that is non-judgmental for us. If you can recognize, okay, I don't agree with your views, I don't agree with your perspective, but I can see that you've thought about this deeply and that you're doing your best to be in harmony with scripture, in harmony with the heart of God, the character of God, and that the objective here isn't to just say, hey, let's all go have you know a hedonistic <laughs> worship culture. That's, that's not the goal at all. The goal is to simply say, here, here's how we feel about this. Here's how we see this. And here's, here's what our vision, our, our heart is uh, when it comes to worship, when it comes to music, uh, and when it comes to a, a broader sort of inclusive culture within the church uh, for the cultural expressions of other cultures uh, that are not sort of Anglo-Eurocentric. Um, and, and, and that's sort of essentially it. Like it's just having that place at the table where we can say, hey, I hold a non-judgmental space of appreciation for you and your perspective um, and there's some things I certainly want to challenge but I, I, I embrace you as a brother and a sister in Christ and we are merely saying hey create this non-judgmental space for your youth as well create it for your younger generations your worship leaders your artists your creatives who are expressing themselves in ways that maybe you're not used to or maybe you don't even like but you can still create a space of understanding and appreciation for them nonetheless and i think that that is the most important thing i think that that's what god is really searching for it's not whether or not we're only playing classical music or we've got some drums in the in the, in the church that's that's not i don't think that that this debate concerns God in any way, shape, or form to the degree that we think it concerns him. I think what, he, what he's most concerned about is that we treat one another with love and with compassion and, and, and with respect. And so that would be, that would be a, you know, sort of the, the sort of, I don't know how do you, how, I'm trying to phrase this in a, <laughs> in a nice way, but um, uh, I suppose that would be what we're asking for. Um, now, with that said, throughout this whole series, I've definitely challenged and Max has definitely challenged pervading ideas within the church that we believe are fun fundamentally rooted in pseudoscience and the race wars that precede even the worship wars, um, race wars that are rooted in, in, in sort of racist ideas and, and white supremacy and sort of political um, conservative agendas that have permeated a lot of the conversation in, in America for, for many decades. And... Um, yeah, we, we do fundamentally believe and we do hold that a lot of that influences this conversation to a large degree and that that needs to be acknowledged and that that needs to be um, sort of laid to the side, right? We need to repent of that if we want to have a forward movement where we can actually meet and uh, love one another and honor one another um, and build something beautiful together. Uh, and so we certainly are challenging things and we certainly are bringing things that we believe don't only impact the worship wars, but they impact so much more, right? They impact our ability as a church to really engage with culture, especially emerging secular generations uh, in many, many, many ways. Uh, and so having that conversation and figuring out what are these underlying ideas that are not biblical, that are really quite carnal and fallen and deceptive. How can we root these Babylonian ideas out, right? How can we root these deceptions out so that we can become a people who truly reflect the love and the character of Jesus to our cultures around us, whether they be in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, or all across the globe, right? How can we be people who have that non-anxious presence and, and that love and that compassion and that welcoming and that humility and, and that hospitality for one another, despite the many differences that we bring to the table in terms of how we express our love for God. 
So with that said, I want to go ahead and dive into this conversation on the studies. And like I said, I want to focus mostly on the roots of this conversation and not spend a lot of time just picking apart at fruit because that's kind of an endless thing. Um, and with that said, there are going to be some links on the actual podcast uh, page that this is published on, on the Story Church Project. And uh, if you want to get those links, just head over to the story church, the slash podcast. And at the, you, you'll see at the very top of that page, you'll see that, you know, the latest pattern art is sort of being advertised, which is this one, uh, Deconstructing the Avenue's Worship Wars. And directly underneath, you're going to see two buttons that you can click. I'm pretty sure they're like orange and you can't miss them and they're really big. Um, and this one is going to be titled Bonus Episode 2 Resources. So you just click on that and it will take you to the link where you can get all the sort of article links and things that I will be um, sort of referencing throughout this episode. All right. So let's talk about the studies. Now, there's three elements that I think are important when we're considering what do we do with these studies that people cite that show that, you know, drums, you know, the moment the drums being played, it makes your brain sexual and that this, you know, puts you in a carnal state and you can't worship God when you're in that state or, you know, uh, studies that say, oh, they played rock music to plants and the plants died and when they played classical music, they thrived or the rats got really, you know, <laughs> really aggressive when they heard the rock music. Um, what, what do you do with these things? So I would say that we need to look at this in three simple layers. The first layer is the layer of pseudoscience because not everything that claims to be science actually is science. So the first layer that we need to consider is, are these studies pseudoscientific studies? Or are they real science? The second thing that we need to consider is when it comes to these studies, are we are we demonstrating selective bias? Are we quoting and citing studies in our presentations on music that suit only the agenda and the narrative that we want to paint? Or are there other scientific studies um, equally robust, maybe even more reliable, that paint the opposite picture that we're ignoring? Because that's important as well. And finally, I want to talk about something I learned from my from my wife, who is a psychology counseling major. And a, a big part of that, uh, that study is uh, understanding statistics and how statistics works. And, and also understanding psychology and science and how, you know, the, the theories that people develop for addressing certain psycho um, psychological problems and and there's one idea that she communicated to me that she learned from I don't know if it was a book or a professor I, I have no idea who the original source for this is but it's certainly not original to me um, but essentially it's called the seduction of reduction and the seduction of reduction is essentially this idea that uh, there's a temptation whenever we're dealing with a topic to reduce it to one variable that we can just sort of exploit and control and create a narrative around. But the truth is when it comes to science, when it comes to scientific research, and when it comes to scientific study, there's never one factor that controls everything. It's usually extremely complicated. So we'll get to that in a little bit. I want to start with pseudoscience. So let me begin by addressing this, uh, one of these studies that um, may maybe some of you have heard, maybe not, but this is one of the studies that a lot of people <clears throat> coming from a more conservative angle on music will often cite. And this is the study that basically claims that rock music, when it was played to plants, uh, it killed the plants. Uh, and that when, when, when nice sort of calm classical music was played, it, it sort of helped them thrive. Uh, so this research essentially comes from a book titled The Sound of Music in Plants that was written by Dorothy Ritalik. I don't know if I pronounced that properly. Dorothy Ritalik. And I believe it was written around the 1960s. I could be wrong on the date, but somewhere around that time. And a big part of the claim in the book was that, you know, in an experiment where they played rock music to plants, it, it killed the plants. Um, but again, when you look at the broader scientific sort of consensus or perspective on this, uh, the claims made by Dorothy Ritalik in her book are not supported and they're not endorsed. Uh, in fact, uh, there's there's one particular doctor that I'll, that I'll quote now by the name of uh, Chamovitz, Dr. Chamovitz, who says this. Uh, and by the way, I am uh, this this research that I'm quoting to you right now comes from a homeschool blog um, homes, titled Homeschoolers Anonymous. Uh, and the reason why this article was written was because the author, as someone who was raised in a conservative homeschooling environment, was exposed a lot to this, these ideas 
And so they did their own sort of research to try and figure out, are these ideas true? Are they grounded in science? And then put all their research together. So that link will be on the site so that you can go and actually follow that research and follow the sort of doctors and other scientists who are making their own contributions to this. And, and you can sort of trace that down. Um, but here's, here's what Dr. Chamovitz says about this whole idea of, you know, you play rock music to plants and they die. Um, commenting on Retilac's book, he says, Retilac studies were drought with scientific shortcomings. The number of replicates in her studies were so small that it was not sufficient for statistical analysis. The experimental design was poor. Some of the studies were carried out in her friend's house and parameters such as soil moisture were determined by touching the soil with a finger. While Ritalak cites a number of experts in her books, almost none of them are biologists. They are experts in music, physics, and theology, and quite a few citations are from sources with no scientific credentials. Most important, however, is the fact that her research has not been replicated in a credible lab. Retalek's musical plants have been relegated to the garbage bin of science." End quote. And this is probably one of the most important things when it comes to pseudoscience is pseudoscience cannot be replicated, right? You can have the scientific study and you can say, oh, we did this experiment and that. And, you know, we came up with this conclusion and there it is. But the question is, can that conclusion be replicated by other scientists who don't share your bias, who don't share your, your, your agenda, but who can just go with the pure science into a laboratory and come up with the same exact results that you came up with. And if that cannot be done, then it's not real science, right? Real science means we can replicate this. We can, we can test this over and over and over again. And we are, for the most part, going to arrive at the same results. Now, there was another... Uh, there's another university professor from Eastern Connecticut State University, a professor of botany, actually, whose name is Ross Koning, who said, who said this in relation to uh, Ritalik's study. He said, plants have no ears to hear and no brain to process or develop musical taste or music appreciation. So any attempts to show relationships between music forms and growth or other responses have met with total failure in the hands of true scientists. This explains the lack of literature you find to read on the subject, end quote. Um, and on top of that, yeah, right, think about um, there's a popular TV show. Many, many of you have probably heard about it. It's a, the show called Mythbusters. So Mythbusters is a, you know, a couple of scientists who do sort of experiments and stuff, and they put them on, I think, uh, I forget what channel it is, but, you know, Mythbusters. You can look them up on YouTube. Um, pretty popular show. And uh, they even had a segment on this particular myth titled Talking to Plants. And um, like Ritalak, they also used bad scientific methods. All right? I'm not saying that the methods that they used were <laughs> incredible or you know foolproof. But if you're going to go with Ritalak, if you're going to side with Ritalak and say, well, I don't care if her methods are approved or not. I'm going to believe what she said because I think that's good enough. Well, notice this. Even though Mythbuster guys used similar bad scientific methods like Ritalak used, their conclusions were actually the opposite. When they tested this in, in their show, what they found was that beat-driven music actually helped the plants grow better. So now you have a scientific study by a couple of scientists, um, and at, at, you know, at, at least they have a bit more knowledge in that space than Ritalik would have, and, and their, their conclusions are actually the plants that we exposed to intense death metal, they grew the most. All right. Now, when I cite that, I need you to understand I don't like death metal. I can't stand it. OK, so like I'm not here saying, ha, oh, let's everybody go do death metal now. Right. That's not the point. The point I'm trying to make is clearly these this research is flawed. Right. It, it can't be reproduced um, in, in, in laboratories and other studies have actually gone in the opposite direction. Now, granted, I don't think the Mythbusters study is that great. I don't think Ritalik's study is that great, right? I'm not going with either one of them. What I'm trying to say is that when it comes to actual scientific laboratory reproducible stuff, this study just basically doesn't work. Um, and so this is really this is really important to consider when it comes to pseudoscience. It's like, can the stuff be reproduced? Because anybody can claim that they have a scientific study that backs their claim. That doesn't mean it's real science. Uh, Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott, who also has a PhD in horticulture, 
um, and is the extension urban horticulturist at Puyallup Research and Extension Center at Washington State University, also wrote a pretty scathing review of Retallick's so-called research, right? And I'm looking again at this article um, where it says that doc Dr. Chalker Scott points out that among many other problems, Retallick's book should not be considered valid because, number one, out of the 40 footnotes, only two are relevant to the subject of plant growth and sound. Uh, so that's another point to consider, right? Just because you have a book loaded with footnotes doesn't mean, wow, this is loaded with footnotes. It must be true because look at all this research. The question is, are the footnotes representing relevant research, right? Um, in Retallick's book, there are a ton of footnotes and only two of them are relevant to the subject of plant growth and sound. So don't be fooled by the number of footnotes. Number two, Retallick anthropomorphizes comparing plants to humans in terms of having likes and dislikes and their feelings and idiosyncrasies. And this is something that I would say to someone, like even if you could prove conclusively that this kind of music kills a plant, well, newsflash, I'm not a plant, okay? So like, you know, it, I think it's a pretty silly uh, leap to take. Uh, but number three, uh, this is her third problem with Retallick's research, that the potting containers that she used in this research were styrofoam drinking cups and they didn't even have drainage. So clearly there's like a lot of problems here. All right. Um, now there is another research um, that is basically along the same lines where, you know, where people talk about, you know, rats were exposed to this music and the music was played to them and, you know, kind of ended up with all of these issues um, and really fundamentally it's the same exact problem um, this just you can't reproduce this research now one of the things that came out of the rat research was that when you play Mozart music to the rats um, they just they get smarter right so uh, then this sort of took this leap to say you know if our kids listen to Mozart music they're gonna be smarter and if they listen to rock music they're not going to be as smart, right? Um, and so, you know, we let's play Mozart music to the kids so that they can develop more intelligence. And I've heard this a lot in like really conservative circles, the idea that if you listen to classical music, it makes you smarter, more intelligent. If you listen to rock music, it makes you more rebellious and less intelligent. Um, and so this has been termed the Mozart effect, right? The Mozart effect. And there's an article on parentingscience.com uh, written by... Uh, PhD Gwen, Gwen Dewar, um, who basically says, look, the Mozart effect is nonsense, all right? In the scientific community, the Mozart effect is just not reliable. So I'm going to quote from the article, um, one line in the article where she writes, no research has ever demonstrated that merely listening to Mozart's music can have a lasting impact on general intelligence or IQ, end quote. Uh, and in fact, she goes on to say, and I quote, when peer-reviewed studies have reported an effect, it has been of an immediate fleeting nature, end quote. So again, uh, this idea that, you know, the, the, the rats listen to rock music and it made them, I mean, I'm sorry, Mozart, and it made them incredibly smarter. And so if our kids listen to Mozart, it's going to make them incredibly smarter. And, you know, sort of like the baby Einstein thing that was really popular a few years ago. Um, it's, it, it just doesn't stand the test of scrutiny. I'll read another uh, segment from her article where she says it was 1996 when the rock band Blur was very popular among British youth. So researchers randomly assigned some of the kids to listen to Mozart and others to listen to Blur. After 10-minute listening sessions, the students took a short test of visual-spatial ability and their performance depended on group assignment. Kids who just listened to Blur performed better than kids who just listened to Mozart. So the effect seemed to depend on the kind of music kids liked, not on listening to Mozart's music, end quote. And that's actually when scientists have attempted to reproduce this research, that's one of the things that they've consistently come back to, that it actually, when it comes down to it, what seems to really matter isn't uh, Mozart, it, it, you know, sort of like this, this whole idea of the Mozart effect. Uh, what seems to actually count is whether or not you like the music that you're listening to. So there is some truth to it. You can listen to music that enables, you know, and you know, sort of increases your intelligence for a, a temporary period of time, your ability to concentrate, all those things. But it's got nothing to do with Mozart. It's just it's got to do with whether or not, whether or not, pardon, uh, you like the music that you listen to. 
And so it probably should be termed more like the music I like effect <laughs> as opposed to uh, the music, uh, the Mozart effect, right? So again, not reproducible in, in, in scientific studies. And what they have managed to reproduce actually seems to suggest the opposite. And so pseudoscience, this is generally how it works. It can't be re reproduced in legitimate laboratories. And it's often driven by political, philosophical, or economic agendas and even power and uh, agendas. So uh, economic agenda, a perfect example is uh, when these bodybuilding companies, um, you know, sort of muscle building companies advertise products that they're like, hey, if you take this product, you're going to grow giant muscles, right? Uh, and they have these pages of scientific research on how this pill is going to like, you know, get into your body and, you know, make your veins bigger and all this stuff. And it's going to put more nutrients in your muscles and they're going to grow bigger and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Every muscle mag that you get will have one or two of these. But of course, those studies are funded by the company that's selling you the product. So they're not going to be 100% honest. They have a vested interest, a vested bias in sort of, how, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, twisting the evidence in their favor. And it's the same thing with, with, with this research. And a lot of what has driven, and Max and I have already talked about this quite a bit, but a lot of what has driven the, the, the research and the so-called studies, the pseudoscience behind music, is nothing more and nothing less than racism. And I know there's people who don't like to hear that because we live in like this age where it's like wokeism and cultural Marxism and everybody wants to talk about race and they want to pull the race card for everything. And, and you know, maybe that's true, but that's not a legitimate reason to say I'm not going to listen to that line of reasoning, right? Uh, you, what you have to do is you have to weigh the evidence. You have to test it and say, well, is it actually true that race has influenced and impacted the conversation, the worship wars, and the conversation over music in general uh, to a large degree? And the answer is unequivocally, yeah. Like race has been really the main driving force behind this. Now, I'm going to read to you um, a poster from an anti-rock flyer from New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, in 1960. Uh, listen to what this, what this poster says. It, it, big, giant, bold letters at the very top. Notice! Exclamation point. Stop. Help save the youth of America. Don't buy Negro records. Again, this is from, you know, a poster in the 1960s. If you don't want to serve Negroes in your place of business, then do not have Negro records on your jukebox or listen to Negro records on the radio. The screaming, idiotic words and the savage music of these records are undermining the morals of our white youth in America. Call the advertisers of the radio stations that play this type of music and complain to them, don't let your children buy or listen to these Negro records. And immediately underneath it says for additional copies of this circular, write Citizens Council of Greater New Orleans, Inc. Uh, and it has the address. <laughs> um, so, I mean, wow. I mean, just listen to that language. Don't buy Negro records. It's screaming, idiotic words, it's savage music, and this idea of savagery and 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 being, you know, a, a person who is black, indigenous, a person of color. This is has a long history of, of you know this idea of savagery, and it's like, hey, what these people are bringing is going to corrupt the morals, not of the youth of America, of the white youth. Of America and I could go on and on and about that but you know Max and I already talked about it quite a bit so I don't want to like you know just belabor that point endlessly um, but again the same thing was seen in Nazi Germany there were actual posters that would be hung around um, basically I mean you know, any music of African origin was outlawed and you know you could only listen to Mozart and you know the, the Reich music hammer sort of like promoted the German composed classical musicians and I remember seeing one particular poster um, uh, basically you know it had an African American uh, you know it was a cartoon and it was you know, very exaggerated sort of racist cartoon um, playing playing a, a saxophone 
um, and it, it literally said on this on this Nazi poster, you know, this is it was outlawed, right? Like this kind of music is outlawed. This is not, this is not allowed in our society. Um, and so, you know, does does the conversation of race impact, you know, the sort of the nineteen 50s, 60s, 70s rock hysteria that a lot of Christians bought into and began, you know, sort of championing and campaigning uh, against. Uh, yeah, they were they were essentially just taking the the rhetoric of sort of political, racially driven wars and baptizing it in Christian jargon to say, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is what's going on. And then you have this pseudoscience that is created to back up the claims, right? But the claims are not driven by science. They are driven by, they are driven by, um, by political agendas. They are driven by uh, philosophical agendas. They are driven by the, the need for power, right? The need for power. Um, now, some people will ask me, well, Marcus, okay, so that, that might all be true, but isn't it still the case that a lot of this music has roots in paganism and voodoo? Like, I mean, we can't ignore that, can we? And, and I have two responses to that. One is a little bit, you know, a little bit snarky, <laughs> and the other one is probably a little bit more measured. But here, here's my snarky response. Um, to the people who usually say that to me, who tend to come from a more conservative theological and conservative political background, I would say this. If you are not going to stop celebrating Thanksgiving because it has roots in colonialism and the genocide of native people, don't talk to me about the roots of rock and rap. I'm going to say that again. If you are not going to stop celebrating Thanksgiving because it has roots in colonialism and the genocide of native people, do not talk to me about the roots of rock and rap. In fact, don't talk to me about the roots of anything, right? Like most conservative sort of evangelical people, even Adventists, would say, oh, there's nothing wrong with celebrating Thanksgiving. It's just a day to give thanks. Stop attaching it to all the things in the past. And I'm like, oh, really? Well, when we say there's nothing wrong with rap and rock and you need to stop attaching it to all the things in the past, you don't let it slide. You keep going, oh, no, that's voodoo and it's satanic and you bring it into your house and it brings all these evil influences. And I'm like, doesn't Thanksgiving do the same thing? All of a sudden it's different. So that's my snarky response. Uh, let me give a, a little bit more of a, of a measured response. Discounting something based on its roots is what is known as the genetic fallacy. For example, when Jesus is beginning his ministry and, you know, you've got that line where it says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because Jesus came from Nazareth, right? That's an example of the genetic fallacy. If he comes from Nazareth, he can't be the Messiah because nothing good ever comes from Nazareth, right? So this is an example of the genetic fallacy that the origin of a thing automatically discounts it as, as good because it has a bad origin, okay? So let's take for example, the case that rock and rap music have roots in pagan and voodoo, and therefore they must be completely thrown out. If you take that logic to its, to its logical conclusion, then you must by default get rid of anything in your life that has roots in paganism, right? It's not just rock and rap that's got to go. It's pretty much anything. And so I find this really interesting because most people who have this line of reasoning are not willing to part ways with anything. They just want to part ways or they just want to attack the one thing that suits their agenda. But let me give you a few examples. In his book, The Extraordinary Origin of Everyday Things, Charles Panatis indicates or points out that the earliest instance in history, the earliest recorded instance that we have in history of a handshake, right? Like where did handshakes come from? Well, the earliest recorded instance that we have of a handshake comes from Egypt. The pharaoh would, they would do these, you know, elaborate rituals where the gods would come into the pharaoh uh, doing these religious rituals. And then, the, and then the pharaoh would come down to the worshipers and he would shake their hands to confer the power of the gods from himself onto them. He was kind of like the conduit. Now that sounds a whole lot like shaking hands after church on Sabbath. In fact, Shaking hands, period. You could make the argument, the best that we know is that shaking hands has a pagan origin. So maybe you should stop shaking hands because, you know, you're conferring the god Ra every time you shake hands with someone. Uh, or in a survey of Christian hymnody, which was cited in the previous episode, uh, it specifically points out that hymns uh, have a pagan origin. They originated in the worship of Zeus in the temples in Greece. 
right? So do we, do we just, are we going to get rid of all our hymns because they have a pagan origin? Are we going to say, no, it's, it's pagan in its origin. And, and because it's pagan in its origin, it, it carries that, that magical property, that demonic property through it. And you can't get rid of it. And anytime you sing hymns, you, you, they, you might put Jesus words to it, but anytime you sing it, you're, you're paying homage to Satan. Are we, are we really going to go there? Um, hymns, as I just mentioned, have that pagan origin. So do flutes. Man, flutes are historically known as the instrument for orgies, right? What about the violin? If you do some research on the violin, it was historically known as the devil's instrument, the fiddle. You can find picture after picture on Google of the devil playing, you know, with the goat legs and the tail and stuff, playing the fiddle to people. It was sort of like the devil's instrument. Um, the days of the week. Did you notice in the Bible, the only day that's named is Sabbath. All the other days are just day one, day two, day three, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's all. Those are all pagan names. In fact, early, early Adventists, refused to use the days of the week because they felt that they had a pagan connotation. They only, the only day they named was Sabbath, and the other days were day one, two, three. And then eventually they realized this is pretty dumb. You know, like, you know, we, have, we have to be functional in the world. So, you know, uh, eventually they, they put the pieces together. That simply doing something that has a pagan origin doesn't mean that you are somehow paying homage to or becoming a channel for its original pagan intent. And I really want to thank uh, Eric Luo for this next insight that I think is really important uh, because he, he points this out in an article he wrote about Christmas that I'm sure you can still find if you Google Eric Luo Christmas article, um, where he points out that the belief, all right, the belief that demonic forces can inhabit an object and that that object becomes a conduit for demonic presence is itself a pagan belief. It is not a biblical belief. The Bible nowhere teaches that a demonic presence, magical, pagan, whatever you want to call it, can inhabit an, 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 an animate object and become a channel of that demonic force regardless of the person's intent. That's not a biblical idea. That's actually a pagan idea. And so when we promote these ideas, what we're actually doing is promoting paganism itself because that is not an idea that is biblical. And I think it's the same thing with, with music. Now, some, some people often ask, and I'll, I'll give you guys a, a source for this one because I think uh, the person who addressed this addressed it much better than me. Uh, some people often ask, well, what about drum beats and possession? You know, there's all these stories about like, you know, people in Africa would play the drums until people were possessed and all this stuff. And to, to answer that question fully, I'm going to point you back to a resource that I've already mentioned, and that is Lillian Dukan, who is a professor uh, at Andrews University, a musician by trade. And in her book, In Tune with God, she has a whole section on this where she basically she just debunks this whole idea of the drums and possession, et cetera, et cetera. And she's got some really good points on there that she can explain a lot better than me. So if you're wrestling with that particular idea, make sure you get your hands on Lillian Dukan's book, In Tune with God. Um, and I would also recommend Ed Christian's book, which I mentioned in the last episode, Joyful Noise, which has whole section where he's debunking claims made by conservative Adventists like Samuel Bakioki in his book, The Christian and rock music. So Ed Christian's book really addresses a lot of those points that Bakioki makes in that book, which again are rooted in pseudoscience and fundamentally based on the race wars. Uh, they're not based on true science or on the Bible. It's easy to make it sound like it's based on true science and it's easy to make it sound like it's based on the Bible because all you got to do is throw in the right buzzwords, right? Uh, but it's not. So I want to move on from the pseudoscience thing now because I think I've I think I've spoken about that one quite a bit. Uh, I think I've made my point. Um, pseudoscience. A lot of these studies that you find that are claiming you know these really sort of uh, sensational things about music, uh, fundamentally pseudoscience. They cannot be reproduced in legitimate laboratories, and they're most likely funded by interest groups who have particular agendas that are anything but noble. Uh, now, of course, I haven't been able to address every single study that's available out there because that would be endless. And, you know, who knows, in four or five years time, maybe somebody will come out with a bunch of new studies. But the way in which we measure this study, these studies is, first of all, to identify whether or not they can be reproduced in legitimate scientific uh, research, um, peer-reviewed scientific research, where you have people from different backgrounds and different biases all investigating the claims and identifying, does the science really back this up? And as far as I can see, with a lot of these studies that people cite, um, they cannot be backed up. So I'm going to move to the second one, which is selective bias. Um, 
when it comes to a lot of these studies, one of the things that's interesting is that when I hear a lot of like conservative preachers talk about like, oh yeah, here's this research that says that drums do this. And, you know, here's this research that says that, uh, you know, when you listen to syncopated beats, it's just bad for your health and all this stuff. Right. The, the funny thing is that there's tons of research that says the opposite. All right. So I'm going to actually share with you, um, some of the research that sh actually says the opposite to this. Uh, let me just uh, pull it up here because I've got it highlighted um, here. And, and these links are also going to be on, 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 the, uh, on the resource page. So there's an article on Mike.com that is titled, Science Shows Drummers Are Fitter and Happier Than Everyone Else. I'm going to read to you a segment of that article, and then I'm going to read to you some quotes from another article, and then I'm going to actually take you to uh, a medical benefits uh, sheet that will also be available on that link. Here's what this particular article on Mike.com says. Drumming is unlike any other form of musical expression in that it carries profound and scientifically proven health benefits. Several scientific studies have shown that playing drums can provide a measurable impact on stress relief, cardio health, and general happiness. Drummers might actually be the fittest and happiest people you know. No other instrument comes close. End quote. Now here's the thing, man. Have you ever heard this research cited in a sermon put on by a conservative ministry about contemporary Christian music? No, because it doesn't suit their narrative. So what we do is we do this selective uh, selective quoting or selective research, most of which, as I've already shown, is, is really just pseudoscience. Uh, here's another quote from Medical News Today in an article titled Drumming in the Brain. The author is from, pardon me, I'm going to try my best to read this. The author is from Bergmanshile University Clinic and the Biopsychology Research Unit at Ruhr Universiat, both in Bochum, Germany, published their paper in the journal Brain and Behavior. And among many things, what they found was that professional drumming, and I'm quoting here, professional drumming, drumming is associated with a more efficient neurological design of cortical motor areas. Wow. Well, you don't hear this sort of cited in um, <laughs> in 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 these sort of like anti CCM um, sermons or DVDs or whatever you call them, right? We do selective research. We select the bits that fit our narrative, and we ignore the rest. Now, this is a PDF that's going to be on that link that has a lot of sources underneath, uh, sources from, from places like um, um, Discover Magazine, you know, Health Magazine, Time Magazine, um, you know, universities, all kinds of research, like good research, WebMD, all that sort of stuff, right? And, and in this uh, PDF, what it does is it points out the documented medical benefits of drumming. And here are the documented medical benefits of strumming. Less stress, right? Um, uh, de de decrease in depression. So it actually helps decrease depression. Um, even cancer, all right? Like, listen to this. Subjects who participated in a clinical trial using the Healthy Rhythms Protocol showed an increase in natural killer cell activity and an enhanced immune system. Jeez. Now, this doesn't indicate a cure for cancer, right? But it shows that there are benefits to drumming <laughs> if you've got cancer. So there you go, man. If, you, if, if you're listening to this and, and you know, you are, are, are struggling with this, with this terrible uh, disease, that, that might be something that you can consider. Um, Alzheimer's disease. According to Claire Bernstein and Johnson, Alzheimer's patients who drum can connect better with loved ones. The predictability of rhythm may provide the framework for repetitive responses that make few cognitive demands on people with dementia. Parkinson's disease and stroke, there's benefits in drumming. Uh, chronic pain, there's benefits in drumming uh, for people with chronic pain. And, and so, you know, you don't hear this, though, in, in, these, in these presentations because, again, it doesn't fit the narrative. And yet I'm looking at this as an Adventist who believes in the health message, by the way, and who believes that, you know, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and that they, we should seek to, to, to care for them and, and ensure that they are healthy. I'm reading this and I'm like, man, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get me a pair of drums and, <laughs> and start learning how to play the drums because this is, this is good for my body. It's good for my mind, right? The other research was showed that it actually increases your ability um, to 
how do they word it? Efficient neurological design of cortical motor areas improves with drum playing. And it's probably because, not necessarily from the beats itself, but it's probably because of the, you know, um, you're, you're doing multiple tasks and, you know, using different parts of your body in, 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 in different ways all at the same time. So it's going to help with those things. But the point is, this is research that shows drumming is good for you. All right. And, and, and so you have to wonder, like, why are we always citing the research that so shows drumming is supposedly bad for you? Research that, like I said, I find, I've found it really hard to even locate some of this research. Um, and yet some of this other research, you know, this one's from Medical News Today, like you can find it easily. You know, you just hop on Google and look up some, some reliable sources and you'll find there's lots of stuff out there about the benefits of drumming. Um, so selective bias is a problem, right? Um, like I said earlier, the Mozart effect, you know, we cite the Mozart effect when further research has shown that if anything, it's the music I like effect, because what they found is people have done better in their tasks, whether they've listened to Mozart or whether they've listened to rock. The question was whether or not they enjoyed what they were listening to and whether the enjoyment provided them with a sense of calmness and, and, and relief. And if it did, then they did better. And if it didn't, then they did not do better. Um, but, you know, it's a lot easier to say, well, I'm just going to talk about the Mozart effect because it suits my narrative rather than point out the fact that further research has shown it, it doesn't stand the test of scrutiny. And we have to consider as well as Adventists, you know how many studies out, out there that, that show that caffeine and alcohol are good for you? And we just ignore them, right? We ignore them because they don't suit our narrative. And, and so why am I saying this? I'm saying this because selective bias is a problem, right? Selective bias is a big problem. And, and when we go to this conversation of music and we say, well, we're going to, you know, here's the scientific evidence, here are the scientific studies, you know, let's go. And we're going to make the scientific studies like some sort of like an infallible source of truth. Um, then we have got problems because we don't actually do that consistently. You know, we only do it when it suits our narrative. And that is the definition of hypocrisy. All right. I'm going to go to the final point, which is point number three, the seduction of reduction. Um, here's the point. These kind of studies, whether they're the studies that I like and, you know, the studies that, you know, push my agenda or whether they're the studies that push the opposite agenda. Here's the point about all of these studies. They cannot, they cannot offer conclusive evidence of anything because that's just not the way reality works. All right. And that's just not the way science works, especially when the study can't be reproduced. Then you've got real problems, right? But again, as I mentioned earlier, my wife being a psychologist student and, and having to study statistics and science, uh, this is a big thing because within the psychology world and, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the mindset world and positive thinking world, there's a temptation known as the seduction of reduction where we can take very complicated phenomena and reduce it to a single issue that if we just do that, then it'll everything's better. Or if we just address that, then we fix the problem. And what real scientists find is that it's never that simple. For example, take the research that says that drums activates your sexual desires. Well, that might be true for one person, but it doesn't mean it's true for everyone. And even if it does activate the sexual part of your brain, that doesn't mean that that activation is processed the same by everyone. There's cultural conditioning to take into account. There's personal background to take into account. There's experiences that you've had that will have developed neural pathways in your mind that may not exist in my mind because I don't share your experiences. I, ha I remember some years ago, um, uh, I was at a youth rally and I took some pictures and posted them online and someone complained that it looked like we were at a club and that it was really disturbing to them because they left that world behind and they were really sad to see it coming into the church. Well, first of all, it didn't look anything like a club, all right? Um, I mean, I've never been to a club, but I've seen enough in like movies and shows. It, it didn't look anything like a club. But the point is this. This person was basically looking at their personal experience and the emotional attachment they had to their personal experience and making it a test of holiness for everybody else. Like, man, I'm glad you're not in that world anymore. I'm glad you've walked away from that and have chosen to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean that the neural pathways that activate when, when you see something are the same things that are activating when I see it. I've never been in a club. I've never done that sort of stuff. So when I was at this youth rally, 
it didn't, you know, there was like zero neural pathways firing to remind me of a past life because I just didn't have that experience. And so what we have to do is we have to be kind to each other and recognize like we all come from different places. We have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. And what might trigger you won't trigger me. And just because it triggers you doesn't mean it's evil or ungodly or unholy. It might just mean it's not good for you. It doesn't mean it's bad for me, right? So the seduction of reduction is a big problem when it comes to the scientific studies, especially when you combine it with selective bias and pseudoscience. The three, these three things form a sort of a foundation that really kills intellectual discourse and kills diversity and it kills our capacity to engage these topics with a calm mind and with a calm spirit because from the get-go we're already engaging the conversation in very negative toxic and unreliable ways and how do you think the rest of the conversation is going to go from there so pseudoscience big problem selective bias big problem the seduction of reduction big problem when it comes to a lot of these studies there's just no way to conclusively prove that you know we saw this in an MRI and that lit up and though and so therefore and 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 this is the big challenge is in a lot of these conservative conversations and, and a lot of these sermons and DVDs and stuff is they take what the research shows and then they build a moral framework out of that research Science doesn't make those claims, right? True science isn't going to sit there and say, well, because the drums activates the part of your brain that's associated with sex, then therefore the moral implications are, no, that's not the realm of science. Once you go into morality, you're not dealing, you're dealing with philosophy now. You're not dealing with science. And so the way a person now interprets that research is going to be entirely dependent on their philosophical agenda. And if they're not using the science appropriately, then they can make the science say anything they want. And they can make it support any idea that they want. And I think it's important for us to be aware, right? To be aware of the misuse of science, to be aware of the selective bias, to be aware of the seduction of reduction, to be aware of things like pseudoscience and, and what it looks like and how it functions. And the deep racial element that underscores a lot of these conversations and the bad logic, you know, things like... Um, like I mentioned earlier, the genetic fallacy and so many others, because when we learn to identify these things, we can we can spot them in the conversation. And that's really been the goal of this bonus episode. It isn't to tell you what to think. It's to give you some tools so that you know how to think when you encounter these ideas and, and, and these narratives and these agendas. So I hope this has been helpful for you guys. And again, if there is something related to the scientific research as it relates to rock music etc cetera, etc cetera. maybe there's a particular study that you know about that you can send me a link to that uh, you would love some thoughts on we have a Q&A episode coming up so please send it through and Max and I will actually take the time to talk to you and, and to respond to that particular thing but hopefully even though I didn't spend time plucking a lot of fruit Hopefully, I was able to show you how you can address the root of this issue and that it's something functional and practical for you as you wrestle with these questions in your, in your own personal life, in your own walk with God. All right, guys, that is it for today. Like I said to you, the very next episode, we are going to be diving into Ellen White Adventist history. It's going to be incredible. So make sure you keep watching this space because this thing's going to go out with a bang. All right, take care and God bless. Mm -hmm.